I'd like you to invite you to open up your Bibles to Proverbs 6, or you can open up your worship guide, or can, uh, the scripture text will be on the wall right uh, behind me. But what we are doing is that, and looking at today, is the book of Proverbs. And we have been looking at the book of Proverbs before the Christmas season, at least. Uh, we've been looking at this uh, book since October. And if you've been with us over the past few weeks, uh, one thing that I've shared with you over and over again is that the book of Proverbs is actually a very challenging book to approach because each verse in the book of Proverbs can seem somewhat disconnected from all the other verses around them. It's a book that is much easier to approach topically and thematically to where we can look at the whole book and to see how all the dots connect to one another. And today we're going to be looking at Proverbs 6. And this is a passage that raises some very important questions. And as I was coming to this text this week, I was saying, hey, I'm going to be, I had this mindset that I was going to preach about work. And it's always fun to see how the Holy Spirit changes your, my own expectations as a preacher. It says, no, I don't want you to preach about work. I want you to preach about something else that has to do with work this morning. So let's see what God's word is for us this morning. This is Proverbs 6, 6 through 11, Proverbs 13, verse 4, and Proverbs 15, verse 19. So let's give our careful attention to these words of life that God gives to us so that we would know him. Go to the ants, you sl o sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise without having any chief officer or ruler. She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When, you will, when will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and once like an armed man. Proverbs 13, verse 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the food, soul of the diligent is richly supplied. And Proverbs fifteen, nineteen, The way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your good word that you have given to us, and we pray that your spirit would minister to us this morning, that your spirit would plant your word deeply in our hearts, that we would receive your word in faith and joy and expectancy as you make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray, amen. What drives you to get out of bed in the morning? What drives you to get out of bed in the morning. John Onwacheka, he after his wife gave birth to their second child, he made this decision that he would start this habit of waking up at 4 o'clock in the morning. Yes, 4 o'clock in the morning. He opted to do this to really get to work, and he found that his days were marked by productivity, that those hours those early morning hours before the rest of his house was awake were the most productive hours in his day. But as that habit cemented in his life, as he would wake up more and more at four o'clock, that time was no longer really 
marked by productivity, but of hope. This is what he says. Just because it is dark outside does not mean it is nighttime. Just because it is morning does not mean the sun has to be shining. Now, if I have a choice, I'm not waking up at 4 in the morning. I'm not. I don't know about you, but I'm not doing that. But a time will come where I must get up. It could be spending time with the Lord or exercising, uh, a meeting, work, or children crying, or perhaps even jumping on me first thing in the morning. All these things can, can really, all these things are reasons why I can get up in the morning. But at the core of them is actually this one idea. And it is the idea of responsibility. It could be if I'm spending time with the Lord, there's my responsibility with the Lord. If it's a child's cry, it's my responsibility as a parent. If it's a work meeting, it's a responsibility for work. And so we have this passage here for us in Proverbs 6 this morning. And this is a, quite, a passage that demands that we think about the question of why do we wake up in the morning? But it's also a, quite, a passage that demands that we think about so much more than that. And I, I've said this before. The book of Proverbs is the moment when we step into a counselor's office. Where Jesus is our counselor and we're coming to him looking for Jesus' wisdom for our life. And so we are sitting across the table from our counselor asking the counselor to instruct us and give us insight into our life. Because... We are, in the words of this proverb, sluggards. That in each, inside each of us, there is a slacker. And so this is a passage that, where we see that God is the one who wants to reframe our lives. He wants to, to talk, speak to the slacker inside each of us and reframe our lives as we think about work and ambition and rest. So as we jump into this, this passage, I want us to first and foremost think about the slacker's problem. The slacker's problem. Go to the ants, you sluggard. And so th that's at least how the ESV translation puts it. If you are looking at the Christian standard, it's slacker. The message, according to Eugene Peterson, lazy bones. It's like, go to the ant, you lazy bones. And so this is a proverb that is addressing slackers. And within the book of Proverbs, this is a very particular kind of fool. Back in October, when we were first getting into this book, I shared that there is a progression to the way of wisdom, and there is a progression to the way of foolishness. That, in fact, there are degrees, there are different depths of foolishness. That there's the simple fool. The simple fool is one who simply does not know better. For example, don't drink coffee just before you go to bed. Excuse me. Don't drink caffeinated coffee just before bed. That would be a simple fool, one who simply needs instruction on really the basics of how to live life. Then on the other hand, at the extreme to that progression of uh, foolishness, you have the scoffer. The scoffer is one who mocks righteousness, who mocks wisdom, who makes fun of the ways of God. That's the scoffer. That's the worst fool. But then you have the sluggard. And the sluggard, the slacker, the lazy bones, this is the best picture of the fool within the book of Proverbs. The Proverbs teach us about the way of wisdom and commends wisdom to us by contrasting 
foolishness by saying this is what wisdom most clearly is not. And, and Proverbs talks about foolishness in ways we, where we see just how undesirable it is. Just a few Proverbs. Proverbs 10, 26. Like vinegar to the teeth, like smoke to the eyes, so is the slacker to those who send him. So right there, the proverb is putting us next to a campfire, and smoke gets in your eyes. And you're, what are you doing? You're waving it away. You pick up your chair. You move to a different spot around the campfire. When the smoke follows you away, you're moaning and complaining about it. Or you have drink vinegar, and you're like, and you spit it out. That is a picture of being lazy. Then Proverbs 13, verse 4, the slacker craves, yet has nothing, but the diligent is fully satisfied. Proverbs 19, 24, the slacker buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it to his mouth. And so in the, the, the Hebrew for the word sluggard or slacker is, gives you this picture of a bow, that it has a string that is not tight. It's a loose string. And so if you take out an arrow and you go to nook it to the string, it would not go anywhere because that string has no tension. It is not taut. And so the slacker, when hearing these proverbs here, the slacker won't even pick up his fork to bring it to his mouth to eat it. That when he is hungry, he exerts no effort to get food whatsoever. And according to Proverbs 6, the passage that we're rooting ourselves in today, the slacker is actually content to stay in bed. That's why they're, in verse 9, how long are you going to stay in bed? This, this is the picture of being a slacker, of being lazy. And, and to a degree, there's a disconnect on this point. There's a disconnect on this point. According to the National Institute of Health, the average person gets less than seven hours of sleep. You need more than that. Lots of things will keep us up at night. It could be home errands. It could be the stresses of the day or thinking about your family or other responsibilities. It could be your social life or enjoying a favorite TV show. But all of those things, or at least most of those things, are only possible due to the invention of both electricity and the light bulb. Sleep doctors say that if you actually want to teach, if you, sleep doctors say that if you want to help your body reset and learn how to sleep well, go camping. Go and be away from lights and electricity. Just set your biological clock by the sun setting and the sunrise. As the sun would go down, you would make a fire and stay up for another hour or so. And then you would go to bed and you would wake up with the sun. And that is actually how people used to live. So in the ancient world, people would get 10 hours of sleep each night. See, we're not machines that just keep on going. We actually need rest. But we, if we're not careful, we can take this good thing of rest and sleep and make it an idol. That if, but if we avoid these things, which is also part of our culture, we can actually break our bodies, which are given to us by God, to steward. Because sleep is a good gift that God gives to us to heal our bodies. But the slacker is one who abuses this good gift. And so he will sleep the day away, shirk responsibilities, and look for you to take care of him. That is what the slacker does. And so as we go through this, this is raising questions of, 
ambition and drive and responsibility and calling? What drives you to get out of bed in the morning? And what are you going to fill your days with? Because a slacker is just very content just to stay in bed and to fill his day with sleep. And so this is when Jesus offers us very, very simple wisdom. Go to the ant. Consider its ways. Without a boss, without a parent, without anyone telling it what to do, the ant just goes about its business. This is the simple wisdom of Jesus. And as we consider this ant, we see that the ant has this internal drive and motivation and energy to go about the day. And so this this is the question I want you to ask yourself. What drives you? What drives you? And this is a question that we ought to think about, but it's also a question that many people will disparage and dismiss because that that question uh, gets at drive and ambition. Oh, that is too so secular. That's for the business world. The church should not be thinking about that. But actually, we should. And of course, we can take a good thing like a drive and ambition and distort it and make it all about us. We are experts at that. We are experts at taking a good thing and making it about us. But when we dismiss this question, we actually dismiss a very biblical truth that is crucial to following Jesus Christ. And the important truth that we dismiss is this, that God made us and God gave each one of us a life, that he gave us a work and he gave us a mission, that he gave us something to do in our life, that he gave us not just one thing, actually, he gave us multiple somethings to do with our life. And so this proverb, this simple counsel that Jesus gives us to go to the end, consider its ways to be wise, is actually a call to humility. I never would, if I have a question about learning how to work hard, I would never, ever have thought to go and look at an ant. I would go say like, hey, let's go look, I'm going to pick up David Allen, getting things done. Good to great. Go pick out one of those books and learn from wisdom there. But Jesus says, go to the ant, consider its ways. But we're accustomed to also being very relaxed, to wait and see, to hang back and see how things would play out. But this ant has this internal motivation to work. And so where this proverb actually inspires us to dream and imagine, not, not just for our own life, but for us as a community and a church, can you imagine a church where every single person has this internal motivation where men and women are working and engaged with conviction and action, can you imagine what the church would be like? Because frankly, that is actually one thing, just one thing, that is one thing that the world needs and is also what we are made for. It's also what we are made for, to have this type of drive. But one of the reasons why this is a hard question to even really consider what drives you is also we get very funny when we talk about work. And that's a big question I want us to think about. What is work? Because this word of work has multiple meanings. And we reduce work to being the thing that we get a paycheck for. 
And there, there's an aspect to that, for sure, that we work, and that is how we make money and make a living, absolutely. But we also tend to think about work as being this hard and miserable thing. And that, there's an aspect to that, once again, for sure. But both of those things are very far from the full picture. Because the first thing to know about work is that work is good. In Genesis, we read, fill the earth and subdue it. That is the command that God gives to us at creation. And God, with those words, is telling us to go out into this world and make something of his good creation. That's part of being God's image bearer, that we reflect about his character and his work back to God and to this world, that God, in fact, is the first worker. He is the first creator. We are the ones who are called to care for God's wonderful creation. And this is actually something that sets Christianity apart from all the other religions. That Buddhism, for example, is quite escapist. Whereas like, hey, I just want to escape this world. But Jesus tells us that we are actually kept in the world, and yet we're meant to be different from the world. So Christianity is both very world positive, but also very work positive. That even before there is a garden, God is the first gardener. Before there was a garden, God was the first gardener. And so like Christianity looks at work and says it is a very good thing because work existed before sin existed. That work is a part of God's good creation. So it's a good thing. Now, granted, once sin came into the world, it was cursed. It was marred. It was distorted. It was made incredibly hard. And so Genesis 3 tells us that as Adam and Eve would go about tilling the grounds, it was by the sweat of their brow, their brow, their forehead, that they would do that. Actually, that's the translation. The Hebrew is much stronger than that. It's by the sweat of your nose. And if you ever worked in any outdoor work during the summertime in the heat of those hours, there will be a lot of sweat coming down your nose. And that just gives you the picture of the hard work that now work ha- has become. And so when Jesus came, he also gave himself to this work, this human activity of work as a carpenter. That his teaching ministry only began 30 years when he was 30 years old. So you can think about his quiet season of life as a tradesman before he stepped into this, his teaching. But if something else that we learn from, about, from Scripture in Ephesians 2 is that God continues to be a worker. That God is not just a worker in the past in the creation, not just in Jesus' life. That we see that God is a worker today in our own lives, in our own hearts. That Ephesians 2 tells us that we, that you, are God's masterpiece, created for good works. See, God made us to do something with our lives. God made you to do something unique in this world that only you can do. To make something of this world where God is the rightful king of this world. So when Jesus, when he ascends to heaven, he gives us another command to go into all the world, teaching this world everything that he has commanded us. And it's not just overseas, it's also in our backyard. It's very, where we are sent into this world, every place, to every people, to every person, 
so that we would minister to them. And so this is part of the work that God has for us. But work is not just about doing something to earn a paycheck. It's not just about doing something that's hard. It's not just something that's good. Work is also in response to community. So, and this is going back to this question of what is work. And, and you see this very clearly throughout the book of Proverbs, that work helps other people. Work helps other people. Helps your family, helps your friends, helps your neighbors, helps society. And this is actually a point that you need to remember in life. As when you're applying to colleges or applying for and searching for new jobs, when you're thinking about career transition, this is a point that you need to hold on to, that you should work and, and, one, and ask the question, how can I provide for my family? But work is not for the paycheck, nor is work for climbing the ladder. We work to help others and contribute to society. That is why we work. That work is a response, a way of relating to one another. And this is very, very hard to grasp. Dorothy Sayers, she was an English novelist who wrote on the merits of the Christian faith. She said this, the habit of thinking about doing work for the sake of making money is so ingrained in us that we cannot imagine what a revolutionary change it would be psychologically or socially to think differently. See, the reality is that every single one of you has a role to play in making something of this world, in making disciples. And it doesn't matter what your job is or your career is or because your calling is to glorify God and you are an essential part in his missionary work in this world. This is true if you are a homemaker, if you are a stay-at-home mother, a stay-at-home parent. It is true if your work days are in the office or if you're working remotely, if you're swinging a hammer or it's counseling someone through life's trials or teaching or balancing numbers as an accountant or a caregiver. Every single one of you has a role and a place within God's story and his work in this world. A church father almost 1,900 years ago said this, that God is most glorified when man is most fully alive. So coming back to Proverbs 6, do you see how the way of the slacker goes against God's design? Because when you slack off, when you drag your feet, when you shirk roles and responsibilities and procrastinate, then you actually are not fully alive. God has something so much more in store for you. He wants you to, under, he wants you to be able to answer this question of what drives you and what gets you out of bed in life. John Coltrane was one of the gr greatest saxophone players and jazz musicians of the 20th century. And in his own words, he had a spiritual awakening in 1957. This is what he wrote. That I experienced by the grace of God a spiritual awakening that was to lead me to a richer, fuller, and more productive life. At that time in gratitude, I simply asked God to give me the means and privilege to make others happy through music. That's a beautiful prayer. That God would use his gifts to make other people happy. 
And so one night he was playing one of his greatest hits at a jazz club. And the thing about jazz is that every single performance is different than another performance. It could be the same song, but every single song can, it, it can be different. There's more spontaneity. And so this one night he's playing this one song and he's playing his heart out. And at the end of his performance, he stepped off the platform. He stepped off the stage and he said a few words. And the, the, the words that he said were actually from Scripture. He quoted Simeon, Simeon, the old man who met Jesus at the temple, when Simeon said, I may now depart. And the idea that Coltrane was getting at there is that he was no longer working for himself, but he was working for the Lord. That he just gave one of the best performances of his life, and it was an offered, and that offering was a freedom. See, when we understand this, that God gives us a life and a work and a purpose of, in life, our work is never merely about making money, but contributing, about making something in this world and participating in God's story. And he wants you to spend your days doing these things for his glory. The last proverb that we read was Proverbs 15, verse 19. The way of the sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright as a level highway. As I said a few times, that Proverbs teaches us about the way of wisdom by a contrast. And Proverbs 15, 19 is meant to catch you off guard. You read this proverb, and as you would read this proverb, understanding Proverbs 6 and even Proverbs 13, you would expect it to say this, the way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the way of the diligent. That's not what the proverb says. The way to the good life is not through diligence. The way to a good life is not through your hard work. In fact, hard work has its own thorns. Hard work has its own hardship and dangers and difficulties. There's a reason why we can talk about workaholics and workaholicism and admit to that. And, and point out how this is deadly and toxic to, the, to us. But the good life... The way of wisdom is obtained by being upright. And there's only one person who has ever lived who is upright. And that person is Jesus Christ. And the gospel tells us that his righteousness is given to you. It's credited to you. It is counted as your own. So that when God looks at you, he smiles and he favors and he delights in your righteousness. And because that, But that is Jesus's that he has given to you. And the truth about the fact that what righteousness does for our work is that it reshapes our approach to our work. Because what this means is that God has actually already given you your ultimate performance review. Five stars. Well done. No complaints. Job well done. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased See, God has given you this righteousness and that we are free to actually give our lives back to God as an offering and give them to him because we are freed from using our work as our performance, that we are freed from being lazy and reckless, but because we are given a new purpose in our life that we can offer to God so that he would be glorified and made famous through our lives. 
that is all because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So let's pray that we would be people who are working and engaged with this conviction so that we would see Christ glorified in our own lives, rejoicing because God has given us the wonderful righteousness of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these words. We thank you for these words. And Lord, we thank you for the freedom that your son brings us. Our freedom to be freed from using our work to earn your praise because that cannot happen. The freedom of waking up in the bed, waking up in the morning and go and give because you have given us a purpose and significance in our life. That you are the one who makes our life significant because you have given us people to love and care for. You've given us a place within your story to contribute in meaningful ways to the, in this world. So, Father, we pray that you would minister to us, that you would help us to consider our life and our work, that we would see these things reshaped and reframed by your love and your grace, and that we would be a people that is eager and energized and anticipating you in doing your wonderful work in this world of seeing heaven here in, in our lives in Westchester and this world. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.